Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. I'm excited to get to preach God's word to you today. Uh, If you have been tracking with us, if you've been in this series and been around this year, you know that whenever this TV rolls out, we don't use the TV often, but when we do, you know it's because we're taking a huge chunk of scripture. And so today we are going to get the, the joy of getting to study all of chapter 14 of Romans. And so we're going to put it up here. We realize that you can't see all of this in the back. That's okay. I really want to do this because I want you to see what Paul is doing. And so we'll put up the verses on the screen um, closer, but I want you to see that what Paul does in this chapter and even the first seven verses of chapter 15 is, is he really is making one big argument. And so I have this up here so that when we start annotating it and breaking it down, I I want you to know and love and fall in love with God's word and see uh, how brilliant it is, uh, this book inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so how we got to Romans chapter 14, uh, if you're new with us or you're, you're checking us out, uh, we are studying through the entire book of Romans. We start at the beginning of the school year, and we've just gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Sometimes we take real small chunks, and we'll study a couple of verses, and sometimes, like today, we're tackling a whole chapter plus. Um, and, and we've seen the gospel play out. We saw in the first two chapters, for really from chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3, sin. And just dark condemnation of sin. And then we see the gospel show up in the middle of chapter 3. And we see sweet theology uh, through chapters 4 and 5 and 6. And just we see the depth of God's grace in those chapters. And then we see what it looks like to walk and live in the spirit. And then we see this deep theology of the sovereignty of God and how powerful he is. And then we got into chapter 12. And chapters 12 through the end of the book, which ends at chapter 16, is all about how we now apply if the first 12, if first 11 chapters of Romans are true, this is what the gospel is, this is what God has done, this is who Jesus is, this is, this is the theology behind what we believe. If these things are true, then now this is how we live it out. And so today is going to be a really uh, beautiful example where the Apostle Paul zooms in on this really one big theme of how we live out the gospel and the theology of who he is. And so we're going to start in verse 1, obviously, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on verse 1. Because verse 1 is going to tell us what the entire chapter is about. Uh, verse 1 is going to kind of set the pace. And also, verse 1 gives us some clues as to, as to really how we should view and how we should interpret. And the correct lens to be able to interpret all of what he's saying in chapter 14. And so, verse 1 says this. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That one verse, right, that one verse in this chapter is going to set the table for the rest of this chapter. And there's a couple things I want us to, to notice here. And first, it's really going to start to ask the question that the rest of, of this time Paul is going to answer. And here's the question. The question that chapter 14 answers for us is how do we navigate differences in conviction without breaking unity? How do we, as believers, navigate our convictions as believers, the the things that convict us, the things that we feel strongly about, right or wrong, how do we navigate those in a world without breaking unity with one another? And that is a really, really important question for us to ask. Um, I don't know if you have noticed, but over the course of last year, we are in in a 
pandemic of, of broken unity. Um, we live in a world that is shattered and split and polarized and angry at each other, and we live in an incredibly divisive culture uh, right now. And, and I mean, we, you can post a, a black square on your Instagram and be instantly accused of being a pagan social Marxist, right? Or you can really follow your convictions to vote for a conservative candidate and be in the same breath confused as a Nazi-loving racist. And those are the polls, right? And so we have this vitriolic attack of each other in the world that we live in where we cancel each other left and right. We make massive assumptions. If somebody does something, we put them in a camp. We, we make all kinds of slippery slope assumptions to them, and it's divisive. And so this question of how do we navigate convictions right, without this broken unity, how do we do that is incredibly relevant to us. That is what he answers the entire chapter of really what it looks like to do that as believers. I understand um, a world who doesn't know Christ and isn't submitted to, to Christ's way, they would butt heads on some major issues and, and should, and I understand that. But we as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, then we're called to look different. We're called to have a unity that shouldn't make sense to the world around us. The world around us should see a unity within people who maybe have slightly different ideas and political leanings and ways they approach certain convictions in their life, but there is a unity to us, and what that does is a broken world that's angry at each other looks at us and says, what is going on? And when they say, what is going on, it should be something that then spurs them to say there is something different about these people and that something different is the God that we follow so that's where we're going it's incredibly timely um, it's incredibly timely now there's a couple of key observations I want to point out in verse one uh, if you had your Bibles I would say circle this idea of being weak in faith right and this idea of opinions um, here's something that I think is super important for us to understand chapter 14 is not about um, the difference between uh, it, it is about the difference between weak and strong, not right and wrong. I didn't actually mean to rhyme those things, so I apologize. Um, it's, not, it's not about what is right and wrong, doing what is right and wrong. It's about this weak and this strong faith. And so there's a really important distinction that we're going to really camp out on here in a little bit, but that's important for us to realize um, that that is what this whole chapter is about, is um, not this person's wrong and I'm right, but instead, this person's faith is weaker, maybe, and my faith is stronger. Or that person's faith is stronger and my faith is weaker. Not a right and wrong, but a, a stronger and a weaker. Okay, let me show you what Paul means. He's going to do this in these three sections. He's going to give some examples of, of what I just described, this idea of weak versus strong. And so in these three sections, in, in verses um, yep, 2 through 4, in verse 5, and then in verse 6, here's how Paul starts to illustrate the point that he's making. Verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's not a knock on vegetarians. Hold on, I'll get there. <clears throat> Although, no, just kidding. <clears throat> uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we have this idea of uh, someone who eats meat, somebody who doesn't eat meat. I'll unpack that here in a second. But I want to show you the other example, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems 
all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then verse six says this, the one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here's what's going on. This idea of like eating and vegetables and I eat meat and I don't eat meat. Let me unpack what the context was happening um, in Rome at the time. So in Rome, when Paul was writing this letter 2,000 years ago, there were temples to pagan gods everywhere, right? Everyone, most people were polytheistic and they had lots of gods, right? They had a fertility god and a, um, a, a harvest god and a water god and a wealth god and uh, all of these things, right? They had all of these different gods and, and pagan temples. And when they went to those temples, they would sacrifice meat and they would sacrifice animals to those pagan gods. That was a part of their culture. That's what they did. That's what they would have heard when they heard that. Now, let's say you're running a temple and you're killing animals all day for these sacrifices. What are you going to do with all the animal meat, right? You're just sacrificing them and the blood is poured out and you're doing your pagan ritual with that animal. Well, what they would do is then they would take those animals that have been sacrificed and they'd chop them up and then they would sell that meat in the marketplace. Here's the problem. A lot of people who were trying to follow Christ at that time were like, whoa, I used to live my whole life in, in the pagan temple and I used to, you know, sacrifice these animals and then I would go and to the marketplace and buy those sacrificed animals that were sacrificed to this pagan god and I'd buy that meat. And so when they got saved, when they decided no longer were they going to be a part of this pagan culture, all of a sudden they realized, shoot, that meat is bad. That meat represents something horrible. That meat is, is something that I shouldn't partake in. That old way of sacrificing animals, these pagan gods, is wrong. I shouldn't eat the meat from it. I shouldn't buy that meat in the marketplace because that meat's tainted because it was given in a really evil, sacrificial kind of way. So that's what he's talking about. And what he's saying is the meat isn't bad. The meat isn't evil. There's nothing inherently evil with the meat, but there are people who have convictions on that meat. There are people who are walking out their life and their faith now and they're new believers and they're young in their faith. They're weak in their faith. And those believers see that meat and they think, ah, that reminds me of my old way of life. I can't touch that stuff. I know what that used to do to me. I know where I used to be with that. I gotta keep away from that. I'm not gonna eat and I don't wanna eat with other people who are eating that meat. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, that's okay. He's saying, don't judge those people. The meat isn't wrong, but their convictions on the meat, we should honor. You shouldn't look down on those people. You shouldn't look at them and say, no, no, get over it. Come on. There's not, don't be so superstitious. You should honor their conviction. That's the point he's saying with the meat. He does the same thing with the day, right? This idea that one day was holy, and God says, man, all of this is holy, right? I have made all of this. And so this idea that like, no, no, this has to be the sacred day and I have to use this as the sacred day. And even Jesus, um, when he talks about the Sabbath and the sacred day, he says, man, man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the man to say, man, you are to, you are to sacrifice time and, and have rest and a sacred day, but it's not this superstitious, it has to be Saturday, it has to be Sunday. And so he's making the same point here. However, there are gonna be weaker brothers, weaker sisters, younger in the faith who say, it's gotta be this day. If it's not this day, I can't do it, and, right? And he says, well, if that's their conviction, then let them have that conviction, support that conviction. Don't judge them for that conviction. That's what's happening here. The beautiful thing, and, and I'm gonna fast forward. I'm just gonna read this to you. We're gonna study here in a second, but verse 17 of this chapter says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to here in a second. 
So the beautiful thing is that if you are in Christ, there are these incredible freedoms that we now walk in. And there's these freedoms where no longer that meat is this superstitious evil thing or that day is this superstitious thing that you've got to follow. And even in our current faith, that we have this freedom to walk and pursue Christ. And it's not about what we eat and drink and, and how we follow the rules, but it is about righteousness and pursuing him in joy and being submitted to the Holy Spirit, which is what he's gonna talk about in verse 17. So this is just hugely important, right, as he sets this context. And so um, here's the thing. I need to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail because this is, I think this is really important. Um, it, it seems to say, it doesn't seem to say, it is saying this concept of, hey, if there's conviction in your heart, you should just trust that conviction. And you should kind of follow that conviction. And if you feel convicted, then, then abstain from whatever that is or do whatever that conviction leads under the Holy Spirit. Here's um, what I want to be real careful of today. Um, there's several parts of Romans 14 that almost make it sound like if you're convicted, then it feels, it feels wrong to them, then that means it is wrong. And all of a sudden, what that does is it starts to seem like it makes sin this relative thing. And it starts to maybe make it sound like, is Paul making the argument that truth and sin and what is right is wrong is relative? Is that what he's saying in chapter 14? That, hey, if it's a sin for you, then don't do it. But it's not a sin for me, and so I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think it's really, really important, if I'm a good steward with the entire Bible, and not just chapter 14, that, that we see, no, that's not what God is saying. There is a black and white truth that we stand on. There is a black and whiteness to the sin that God calls us to walk out of, to the righteousness that God calls us to walk into. But yes, it does appear that there are gray areas in our faith. Let me make the illustration. Let me show you um, of some black and white areas. And these are, these are a bummer, right? Because it's sin. But if we look back at the very first part of Romans, right? Chapter one and chapter two. I wanna show you a couple of things. I wanna cross-reference um, so we see the whole of the argument Paul's making. And don't just get lost in, in, the, in the argument of the gray that he's talking about in chapter 14. Romans chapter 1, we'll put it up on the screen for you. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32 says this. And this is, this is dark. This is before the gospel. This is when brokenness is, is all in our world. And since they, those who aren't following Christ, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. There is a black and whiteness to these are out-of-bound things that Paul's making an argument for. They are haters of God. They are insolent. They are haughty. They are boastful. They are inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There's a list of these are things of how they are functioning outside of God that are unapologetically, objectively wrong. And then he says in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decrees, they know what is right. They know what is wrong. It's written in their heart, it says later in chapter one. They know those righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. If we were to just read this chapter, and this is all we had in Scripture, and we just kind of hear this idea of like, well, maybe sin is relative. That's not the case. That's not what the rest of Romans says. That's not what the rest of the Bible says. A few verses later in Romans 2, from what I just read, it says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by 
patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury that do not obey the truth. Not they do not obey their truth. Not, oh, they're going to be condemned if they don't obey their own personal truth that they customize based on their convictions. No, God has set a standard. And praise God that then Romans chapter three happens, which then Romans chapter three happens and God says, for all have sinned, all fall short. None of us actually do this well. Everybody falls and, and yet we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus. And so beautifully we see the gospel show up in chapter three and everything changes and his grace covers all of that brokenness in us and there's grace there. But it's really important for me as a pastor leading you guys that we can study this for what it is. We can step into the gray areas of our faith without abandoning the truth that truth is not relative. Sin and what is right and what is wrong is not relative. And there's a lot of gray areas. Some we'll talk about today, some that are talked about here. If you want to continue to navigate those and figure out, well, what are other gray areas? We find that out by studying God's word, not just by deciding what we want Um, not just by deciding what's comfortable for us. Um, How you answer the question, what is truth, what is right and what is wrong, how you determine right versus wrong is going to dictate a lot about how you submit to God. And and if you are building your worldview, which I'm going to warn you, this isn't new to you, um, the world we live in says, man, let your feelings be your guide. Let your feelings be your guide and your anchor to what is true and what is untrue. If it feels true to you, then it's true. And if it feels untrue to you, then it's untrue. And if it feels right, then it's right. And I, I, would just wor- I would just warn you and caution you, there is beautiful grace. There is definitely some gray areas in scripture that we can study and chew on and, and give grace and trust people that they've got convictions and we've got convictions. That's an important distinction but that we don't break unity over those gray areas is important. But we also don't want to swing so far that we've made truth a relative thing. That's dangerous. And if we do that, I'm worried about the 75-year-old version of us who looks back and thinks, what was real? What was true? God sets these boundaries of what is right or wrong, not because he's this arbitrary, arms-folded jerk of a father. He sets objective boundaries in our life because he loves us. Because he's called us to a life and a life abundant. And he says, look, this is how to live in a way that you will flourish and you'll experience joy. And will it be easy? No, it won't be easy. Good things aren't easy. It'll be difficult at times, but, but submit to this way and there is life and there is life abundant. And in those ways that you mess up and blow it on a constant basis, my grace will cover you if you're in Christ. And so praise God that I don't have to stay within these boundaries out of fear. I get to stay within these boundaries out of joy and jubilee that he still forgives me even when I wander out. It's this incredible relationship that those who follow Christ have. But what do we do with those gray areas? What do we do with those areas that are gray, that do seem to, to not necessarily have a right or wrong. Is it okay to eat the meat? Yeah, it seems like it is, but we're supposed to just kind of honor that person who doesn't think it is. Those gray areas have to be navigated by our convictions. And our convictions are not just our feelings. 
right? It is a feeling when the Spirit of God moves on our heart and our conscience to show us what's in bounds and what's out of bounds and what our Father wants. Let me illustrate it this way. I got a four-year-old. His name is Miles. Miles is not allowed. Um, we've got a, an island in our kitchen, like a a big kitchen island thing. He's not allowed to stand on the island. The other day, he was standing on the island. He was on the island, and I was like, Miles, off the island. Here's what my son does. He's four and a half. Here's what he does. He's like, oh, okay, I'll get off the island. And so then he sits on the island. Instead of standing, he's, and then he asks, can I do this? And we're like, nope, you can't sit your bottom on the island either. And then he like slides to his chair, and then he literally puts his feet up on the island. Can I do this? No, Miles, you gotta be off the island. And then he takes his feet off the top and puts them on the side. Can I do this? I'm like, no, Miles, you can't do that either. And then he puts his arms in his feet. Can I do this? He wants to figure out exactly, show me where, right? Like he's listening to his father saying, hey, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't. And he's trying to figure out, okay, where are the boundaries? At what level can I do this? How much am I allowed to do this? And so there's this idea for us that we have got to figure out what our convictions are. When God says, no, you can't do this, we need to obey, but also we need to look at those convictions of saying like, Lord, is this permissible? Is this permissible? God, would you speak in my heart? Would I study and submit to this as truth? Would I get wise counsel to help me interpret this correctly as objective truth that we, we submit to? Um, and so, so here's what he does. In verses um, 7 through 12, Paul then kind of makes this argument. I'm just going to read verse 7 to you. It says, for no, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. And he's going to make this argument here basically one argument of the idea that this thing isn't about us. This, this world doesn't just revolve around us, like individually, me. That I am a part of a, of a bigger community, a bigger body of believers. And so um, we see that kind of bracketed here in 7 through 12, that um, it's not just this individualized thing, it's a part of a community. Okay, so what do we do with all this? My question is, how do we apply this? If this is true, if this is an issue of weak faith and strong faith, if this is an issue of, okay, there's some gray areas that I'm supposed to really uh, support people in, what do I do with this? Two application points, and, and Paul does it for us. He answers those questions right here in verses 13 through 18, and then he's gonna give us a second application point right here. I want you to pay attention to the word therefore. We've talked about this in here. Anytime you're studying scripture and you see therefore, stop. I'd be like, okay, this is a key turning point, right? All of this is true, and if it is, therefore, this is how we act. What is that therefore, therefore? And here we go. So verse 13 and on says this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother. Here's the truth. Here's the big idea. Here's what we're to learn and walk away with as an application of if there is this gray area, what am I, how am I supposed to navigate it? We are commanded not to judge. That's how I'm supposed to navigate it. I am commanded not to judge those who have sensitive convictions, right? So people whose, whose convictions are, are sensitive towards one of these gray areas of the faith, I'm commanded to not look down on those people. Look how Paul continues to elaborate in verses 14 through 18. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with the meat. There's nothing wrong with the meat. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Their personal convictions. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And there's that verse 17 again. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Guys, we are commanded not to judge. We're commanded not to judge other believers who have more sensitive convictions. Look, if it's true that gray areas exist, which it is, therefore we're commanded not to judge with those who struggle. Let me give some personal examples. Um, I've got um, a friend who he only listens to Christian worship music and he doesn't listen to any other music, right? I think he actually listens to Christian worship music and Christian music. Um, like, act, like not just worship, but like Christian artists, which is kind of like normal artists, but not as talented. So um, just kidding, just kidding. My cousin's in a Christian band. I only say that because he might be watching, um, right? So, uh, so, right, so they only listen to Christian music, and that's great. That is great. That is a conviction that he has. That is not a personal conviction I share. But if he's in the car with me, then I'm going to let him choose what we listen to, right? Or we're not going to listen to anything. Right? And, so, and so for those reasons, I'm not going to look down on him and judge him and say, oh my gosh, you're so JV in your faith that you, know, you can't even listen to a, you know, a little bit of other non, you, know, you can't even listen to any secular music. Right? I, I don't judge him for that conviction. Another one is this, <clears throat> and I know this doesn't really touch you guys in college, but it's alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, we're going there. Um, Listen to me carefully. You can't go to the bathroom during this point I'm going to make because if you only hear half of what I make, I'm going to call you out if you stand up to go to the bathroom. Um, <clears throat> there is nothing inherently evil that I can find in Scripture about alcohol. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Jesus made wine, and it was really good. Like, it was the good stuff that he made, right? There's nothing inherently evil that we see from Scripture about wine and about alcohol. That, that's not an evil thing. Now, Having said that, this is why you can't go to the bathroom right now. Having said that, we do see a very clear line on drunkenness. Right? And we see the, what the result of alcohol can easily be is drunkenness. And we see that there's a clear boundary to say, man, if you are drunk, then you are missing out on the abundant life. You are using that as a coping mechanism. You're, you're, you're not walking in the confidence that I can give you because you need to have alcohol in your system to be able to be yourself or feel like yourself, and that's dangerous. And, and our Father is saying, I have something more for you. And so we see a clear line of drunkenness being out of bounds. Alcohol is not evil. Drunkenness, God says, hey, that's, that's not what I called you to. Get back in bounds. The other thing, too, that we see, unfortunately, because of chapter 13, what we studied a couple weeks ago, is this idea that we're to submit to the laws of our government, whether we like them or not, as believers. The laws of our government are that we're not supposed to drink until we're 21. And so for that reason, because of Romans 13, not because God's up there and he's like, oh my gosh, you're 20 and you had alcohol and it's evil and that's Satan's drink and you just drank some of it now. But because we submit to the laws of our government, we say, okay, I'm going to abstain in that way. And if the laws change next year to where it's 18 is the legal age, then that changes. If it changes to until it's 50, then that changes, right? Then I'm going to have a lot of wine in my house that I'm just going to have to really age and mature for a good long time. I got a good bottle of bourbon that I'm just not going to be able to drink until my 50s, but it's going to be so good because it's going to mature really well, <clears throat> right? We're, we're called to stay in bounds in those ways, drunkenness and even underage. Now, if you're uh, under the guardianship of your parents and you're at dinner and you guys get wine at your meal and your parents, you know, do that and that's then fine. Then that's a personal conviction. 
that you say, okay, that's not a stumbling block for me. I'm not getting drunk with my parents and I'm under their guardianship and so I'm going to order some wine with my parents or I'm going to have a margarita. And, and that is this thing that we navigate as believers, but it's this gray area of our faith. Now, if you're around somebody who says, whoa, 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 I do not drink, I can't drink, I don't want to drink, I don't want to be around alcohol. You have roommates, you have people who say, man, I don't want that. If you look at them and think, golly, what a prude, what a legalist, what a self-righteous, if you start judging that person for their convictions, you're out of bounds. We're not called to judge them. There are going to be people who struggle differently, who see those things differently, who have different stories. And as believers, not only do we submit to rules and laws at times in our government that we're like, I wish I didn't have to, but under Christ, I will. We also say, okay, I'm going to not judge somebody, even though that's not my conviction. I'm going to give you one more example, and I'll be quick on this one. The Bachelor. I hate The Bachelor. I hate it. I'm going to give you an example of I am the weaker brother. If I am around The Bachelor, I get angry, right? Uh, I'm, in my, in my, I'm in my office, and I'm like spending time with Jesus, and like just in a deep, quiet time, and I just kind of glory, and I'm glowing, right? From my, and I walk out of the office, and my wife is watching The Bachelor, and I just start cussing, right? Just kidding. I don't cuss. That's a sin. I don't. But... <clears throat> But it's this, it's this thing for me that I just, I, I hate that show so much. But I know some of you don't have that same conviction and you love watching train wrecks. And so it's like, cool, great. I don't. And for me, it drives me crazy. But I can't judge you, right? There's nothing inherently evil. If you were to go on that show, come and talk to me and I'd like to give you some pointers. Um, like don't go on the show would be point number one. <clears throat> But, but that's the idea, right? That, that, okay, in that situation, I'm the weaker brother. I can't judge someone else who has different convictions than I do. Okay, here's the second application point. Ready? Second application point. We've got, we've got this block here in, in your text of like, okay, he's really made this point of, okay, therefore, if this is true, therefore, and then right here, he does the same thing. He says, so then, which is really another way of saying therefore. In fact, if you have an NIV Bible, it actually says, verse 19, the word is therefore. This is the ESV. Sorry, that was nerdy. Here we go. Ready? This is what it says. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's the big idea here of this application point. Do not, verse 20 says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine and do, listen to this. It is good not to eat meat. Remember what that meant nothing wrong with it, but it is good to not eat meat, right, and to not drink wine or do anything else that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not produce, uh, for whatever does not produce from faith is sin. Here's the second big thing that we can walk away with. Not only are we not called to judge, we're also called to give up our freedoms, right? We are called to give up our freedoms, right? We are asked here in scripture, in this passage, to sacrifice our freedoms if it causes someone else to stumble. And by stumble, if somebody else is, is, doesn't want to be around it, can't be around it, they've got personal convictions around that, not only am I not supposed to judge them, but I'm supposed to give up the fact that there's nothing actually wrong with it. There's nothing inherently wrong with anything not Christian music, but I will joyfully not listen. I'll listen to whatever they want because what the gospel commands me to do, this sacrifice, give up my freedoms for someone else. It's this beautiful thing, right? 
alcohol. You, you guys are living in this world of it. Would you be willing? Not because God needs you, not because he's got the checklist and he's watching your Thursday night, but because you submit to a God who says, hey, help them not to stumble. There's so many people who don't know how to just have a drink, especially in college. Right? There's so many people who are going to struggle with that, and one drink isn't one drink. And are we believers who care about unity and care about obeying God's word to the point where, not because we think it's evil and it's Satan's juice, right? But because we say, I love the Lord and I'm gonna submit and I don't wanna cause this person to stumble. And maybe I'm of age and they're not and so I'm just not gonna put them in a place where maybe they'd be tempted to, to, to break a rule. Maybe, maybe I've watched them really struggle or they've admitted to it or I feel conviction that they struggle and they don't even feel it. So I'm gonna try to, encourage other activities for us to do man would we be willing to sacrifice our freedoms yeah we're free to do that if we fall within those guidelines but would we give that up then there are people who I just won't drink around I I won't drink around them because man I I don't want to cause them to stumble for me right to have Italian food without a glass of wine I it confuses me it's like canes without the sauce it's like why would you do that like what is the point of that and yet, if I'm having Italian food with somebody, my, my brother is a struggling. He went through AA and NA. And so there's seasons in, in my relationship with my brother. It's like, okay, I'm just not going to have wine. Would God be displeased if I did? No, there's nothing wrong with me having a glass of wine. But I want to love my brother well. And I want to joyfully give that up. God, what happens if we do that? What happens if this room of people catch fire, love the Lord, not out of legalism, but out of a love for other people and just say, I'm going to surrender the things that, yeah, I have the rights to do, but I'm going to surrender them for this season, for a specific season in college or a specific season this semester or for, because I want to love people well and I don't want them to stumble. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying. I got another one too. And I want to be real sensitive with this one. Um, I'll be quick. I I realize, man, eating disorders are such a a crippling thing and such a pervasive thing um, in this this season of your life. And if that's you, you are not alone, okay? You are not alone. And there's a lot of help and a lot of freedom. And we've seen a lot of women and men who've struggled with that. And that's a real thing. But that's something that I think you need to look at of saying, okay, the way you talk about food and engage with food, if you're around other people who maybe struggle with that, and maybe you don't struggle with it, but maybe it's a way to say, okay, I want to really go above and beyond and and really be really supportive and sacrificial to other people who maybe I've got convictions, maybe they're struggling with some stuff in in that world. And you know what that looks like in the houses and in your roommates. And man, what does it look like to just be constantly pushing towards unity? to not cause people to stumble. There's a lot of gray areas. How do we know what they are? We study this. We find wise counsel and we continue to study this. That's application. We don't judge. We don't look down on people whose maybe faith is, is younger or, or what he says weaker and they're gonna kind of need those hurdles. Uh, we also are willing to give up our freedoms, but how and why? Let me end with this. Let me end with the how and why we do this radical command. Why would, we, why would we do that? Why would I give up my freedoms? And how do I do that? Here's what I want to end on. Chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. It's the very next seven verses after, after 14. This is what Paul says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Listen to verse 3. For Christ 
did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why do I give up my freedoms? Why do I give up my freedoms? Because it's how Christ has loved me. That's why. Why would I do that? Why would I not partake in the things that like I'm allowed to partake in and listen to? And why, why would I do that? Because it's what Christ did for me. Verse three, that's what he did. He didn't please himself. He had all the freedoms in the world and he surrendered his freedoms. Sitting on the throne as the Holy One of God surrendered that to the point of death on a cross for me. That's why I do it. And how do I do it? H- how do I even muster up the strength to do it? By his power, not my own. That's how we do this. That's how we live this out. That's how this community walks out of here, applies scripture, and lives in a radical way for God's glory. Is not because we just are going to be legalists and strong-willed and really disciplined, but because we say we're not strong enough. We literally just sang a song earlier, here in the power of Christ I stand. So when we're in those situations of temptation, when we're in those situations of conviction, we say what verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. Would we live that way? Because that's what God has done for us. He has loved us that way. The gospel allows us the power to be able to do that. The gospel that says we were never good enough, you were never good enough, I was never good enough, we didn't earn this thing, we're not earning this thing now, that it is his grace that came and purchased this relationship we have, this freedom that we have. That's the gospel. If I put my faith in him, if you put your faith in him, not try to keep the list and be good enough and not do the wrong things, but put your faith in Christ and say, this is exhausting. There is freedom in that. And those areas that we still say, no, he's not better. I still want to do this. I don't know that I really trust him. Would he change our hearts in those ways? Would we leave this place today, not just inspired by what God's word says to go out and do, but inspired by a God who will change our hearts if we raise our hands to him and say, God, help my heart believe that you are more beautiful than this. What you have done for me, what I see it deeply so that I can respond radically. Let me pray. Father, thank you for how you love us. God, um, I just pray that you would, uh, you would do what only you can do, Father. That we would leave here, not just with this clear admonition uh, to live our lives in a way that brings you glory, to live our lives in a way that doesn't cause others to stumble, um, but Father, I pray that we would... Um, we'd leave here today with more faith. Not just more instruction and direction, but God, the faith. Um, And so Lord, in those areas that we still doubt, um, one thing to sit in church and feel like, yeah, we want to walk radically, but, but then in those seasons when we just feel like we're surrounded by temptation, God, would you just really help deepen our belief in our heart that you are better than all of those other things we might chase after. We love you. We're grateful. In the name of Jesus, amen.